This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode consists of two segments, both CBS News broadcasts of August 10th, 1942. The first is the World Today News Update, with reports on the war in Europe, Asia and the Pacific, as well as updates from London and Cairo. The second is a special broadcast from Rio de Janeiro, reporting on the return of American prisoners from Japan. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the world today, presented Monday through Saturday at the same time. During the next 15 minutes, you will hear news and analysis by Quincy Howe and CBS correspondents at home and abroad. And here are the major highlights in the news of the day. Russians scorch Mykop oil fields as German Caucasus drive continues. More American troops arrive in Britain as American Air General promises early offensive. Congress party sympathizes riot in Bombay. Admiral King announces American landings in Solomons. And now, Quincy Howe and the news. The retreating Russians are now blowing up their oil wells and installations at Mykop. The German drive into the nearby Caucasus also gathers momentum. Northwest and southwest of Stalingrad, Red Army tanks still hold fast. The chief danger to Stalingrad, the Volga and the Caspian, now comes from further south, where German troops moving along the Caucasus foothills may turn north and try to flank the Russian defenders of Stalingrad. The Russian Black Sea port of Novorossiysk is perhaps in still greater peril. But Russian counteroffensives further north at Baranyaz and Rezev continue. Dispatches from Moscow say the Russians fear they cannot expect an immediate second front in Western Europe. Moreover, the Russians now feel that even the opening of a second front in the West would not greatly affect the outcome of the present campaign in the Caucasus. Meanwhile, from London comes word that another very heavy contingent of superbly equipped American troops have arrived in the British Isles. They are already undergoing rigorous training and in invasion tactics. And Major General Spatz, head of our air forces in the British Isles, announces that planes under his command will lash out at Hitler's cities in the immediate future. RAF attacks on German cities also continue. 200 bombers raided the railway junction of Osnabrück in the Ruhr Valley last night with good results. Yesterday, Leopold Amory, Britain's Secretary of State for India, expressed the hope that the police and the courts could handle any violence that might occur as a result of the British decision to arrest the leaders of India's Congress party. Already that hope has come to grief. In Bombay and New Delhi, British imperial troops had to be called out to quell disorders arising from attempted general strikes. Ten riots occurred in Bombay, and at least ten Indians have been killed. But Calcutta, by far the most important center of India's war industry, has not yet witnessed serious trouble. The most significant item about India comes, however, from China. James Stewart, CBS correspondent in Chongqing, cables that Chinese newspapers tomorrow 
will all express deep regret at the British action in going against the Congress Party and arresting its leaders. The Chinese attach great importance to the principles of the Atlantic Charter, and they feel, rightly or wrongly, that the British have taken an unnecessarily high-handed attitude toward the Congress Party leaders, whose support the Chinese believe is essential if India is to become a full and equal participant in the war effort. This afternoon, Admiral Ernest J. King, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet, announced that American forces have now landed on the Solomon Islands, where heavy fighting is still raging. Admiral King emphasized that this action in the Solomon Islands is our first real offensive that we have launched, the first one at all in this war, and that considerable losses must therefore be expected. And now for more details on the Solomon Islands to CBS Washington, Eric Severide reporting. We have lost at least one cruiser sunk, and two cruisers, two destroyers, and one transport have been damaged. These are serious losses, but this is an important operation, and these losses are only a small fraction of those the Japanese said we had suffered. Contrary to Japanese claims, we made the first attack and not they. The Japanese were surprised. Admiral King says planned landings were accomplished. He does not say that all the landings were accomplished. The action is directed at the Tulagi area in the southeastern Solomons with Vice Admiral Gormley in immediate command and with some of General MacArthur's forces taking part. According to Admiral King, the enemy was preparing to use these bases to attack the positions which cover our line of communications to Australia and New Zealand. About the enemy losses, the Admiral says the information is incomplete, but they have lost a great many planes and a number of surface ships. He points out that this kind of landing operation is one of the most difficult in warfare and warns us to expect considerable losses. There are no details about casualties among the men. This is the first time we've taken any territory away from the Japanese, and the Admiral confirms the impression of, of observers here that the fact that we have now moved to the offensive is of tremendous significance. Until the Battle of Midway, we had no alternative but to watch and wait and try to be wherever the Japanese might choose to strike, any place over an area of thousands of miles. This attack is evidence that they, not we, are now in that unenviable position. Two things should be kept in mind. First, that even if our losses are heavy in the Solomons, that does not necessarily mean that the Japanese will be able to pass again to the naval offensive anytime soon. And second, that even if we are very successful in this attack, that does not guarantee that we will be able to continue this northward offensive immediately. The Japanese are protected by a tremendous defense in depth, 2,000 miles deep, in fact, by their screen of island bases. It will be a job not of weeks, but of months and probably years. As you know, a federal investigation has been ordered concerning a story published by the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Times-Herald, and the New York Daily News around the time of the Battle of Midway. The story contained details on the strength and disposition of the Japanese fleet. Today in the United States Senate, a heated debate sprang up. Senator Brooks of Illinois accused the government of trying to smear the Chicago paper. He brought up the issue of freedom of the press, but Senator Barkley said that if the papers had violated the law, they had no more right to immunity than anyone else in the United States. The publishers contend that the investigation is a political attack upon them because they oppose the administration. About that, I don't know. But as most informed reporters here are well aware, the excitement and alarm over this story had its origin not with any civilian chiefs in this government, but with the Army and Navy commanders themselves. Next, we hear from CBS London, Bob Trout reporting. 
Ed Lundlin, the news of the Allied offensive against the Solomon Islands can be clearly seen as part of the grand strategy of total worldwide war. More than one London editorial writer points out the strategic link between seeing the Japanese out of the Solomons and smothering the Congress Party's campaign against the United Nations in India. The Japanese and Germans menace India from two sides. The followers of Gandhi, Nehru, and company menace India from within. That is becoming the opinion of the patient people of Britain who, last week, hesitated to think the worst of the Congress Party and its leaders. This is an academic point for what the people of Britain, or the United States, think has very little effect upon that section of the Indian population engaged in the violent campaign of nonviolence. In London, it's considered that this is plainly a campaign without leaders, a mere echo of what would have happened if the government of India had not acted so promptly. Students of modern political history should be interested to note that the Communist Party of Great Britain condemns both the Congress Party and the British government. The British Communists say the British government's measures were stupid, clumsy, and provocative. But the Indian Communists support the government of India's actions, and the government-controlled newspapers of Russia also haughtily approve. Those who speculate on the atrocities which the Japanese would practice on the Indians if they get the chance should be interested in the German orders to their army of occupation in Belgium. For the Germans have referred to the Japanese as the Germans of the East, and the Japanese have returned the compliment by imitating some of the more effective methods of torture in use on the continent of Europe. The document which has reached Britain from Belgium orders the German soldiers, in case of retreat, to destroy everything, to terrorize the civilian population, to burn towns, to shoot without hearing prominent Belgian civilians as well as officers and men of the Belgian army, and to place groups of women and young girls at the head of German columns. The German army plans to use the same tactics in retreat as in advance. And now to CBS Cairo and the report of Chester Morrison of the Chicago Sun. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you really want to know how many airplanes were shot down last Tuesday and how patrols are active in all sectors. If you want that kind of stuff, I wish you'd let me know somehow. I can tell you that. But I want to tell you what's really going on. And I can't do that because it would not be prudent. I sit here talking to you about birds and flowers because I can't talk about anything else. And at the moment, I wouldn't even if I could. So this is a gripe against and a defense of censorship. At this end of the line, where censors have worked at their thankless job for years, they have learned how it should be done. But censors in America have not learned what war is. War is vicious and brutal and informal. The more formal you make a war, the more likely you are to come out second best. Censors of all people should know that. My letters from home arrive ragged and tattered because censors have been at work on them with a razor blade. The letter says Joe's rightfully worried about a rubber shortage and closed with a letter with a magazine clipping which the censors removed. Inserting instead a notice that transmission of such material was not permitted. The clipping was a criticism of censorship. I know because I wrote it. And 
But I have a complete uncut copy of the magazine here in Cairo. That kind of censorship is annoying and unintelligent. Let me tell you about the other kind. The kind of this one. It stops me from telling you things I know and think you should know. It stops me so completely that my paper must think I spend my time under a table. But it also is the best insurance against leakage of important information. If I told you what I know and added my interpretation of what I know, it might make your hair stand on end. And it might take you out of your lethargy about this battlefront. But don't shoot the censor. He's doing the best he can. This is Chester Morrison returning to CBS New York and Quincy Howe. We know the atmosphere was bad during our Trout and Morrison broadcasts from London and Cairo, but we hope that you got something from them just the same. Leland Stowe of the Chicago Daily News and New York Post Foreign Service cables today from Moscow that not only Russia, but all the United Nations are looking to America for war leadership. We may not deserve this confidence, but we have got it. And it is perhaps the most priceless single possession in the arsenal of the United Nations. Unhappily, the Indian tragedy has probably gone too far for the United States to contribute anything to its solution now. But if America still does stand for the idea of democracy and freedom among the peoples of Asia, we have precious little time to make that prestige of ours still count as a United Nations asset. Already, the Chinese are deploring the arrests of the Indian Congress Party leaders. The spread of serious disorders throughout India can create discontent in other sections of Asia. And Axis propagandists are making the most of that state of affairs. The offensive our naval forces have taken in the Solomon Islands may reassure the Chinese that we have not forgotten about our war with Japan. The arrival of more troops in Britain should also buck up the Russians, who still hope for a second front sometime, if not immediately. But United Nations prestige does not rate high in Asia right now, and with the destiny of one billion people at stake, whatever we may do in the Asiatic war zone, or even in the related war zones of Russia and the Middle East, will have crucial importance. Then here's the midnight communique of the Red Army just arrived. German invaders of the Caucasus have reached the areas of Mykop, chief city of the rich oil fields of the same name, and Krasnodar, 60 miles from the Novorossiysk naval base. American newspaper men who have just landed at Rio de Janeiro on their way back from six months in Japanese prisons and concentration camps disclosed today that young Butch Conoy, the American-educated son of former Premier Conoy, was arrested shortly after the outbreak of war in the Pacific. This was simply one of many arrests of former Japanese conservatives and moderates. General Stilwell's headquarters in China announced that United States Army flyers have carried out a successful attack on the Japanese-held base of Haipong in Indochina. American headquarters also say that by holding the offensive against Japan, our flyers have prevented the Japanese from striking back at our base in Hengyang. The Polish government in exile reports from London that Colonel Richard Gessler, German Gestapo chief in the Krakow district of Poland, met his death on July 30 when his automobile overturned. The Nazi press attributes this accident to sabotage. And that's the world today. CBS World News presents this program each evening, Monday through Saturday at the same time, 6.45 p.m. Eastern Wartime. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
CBS World News brings you a special broadcast from Rio de Janeiro, where the Swedish liner Gripsholm docked this morning en route to the United States. Aboard the Gripsholm are many Americans who were prisoners of war in Japan. They are returning to this country in exchange for Japanese nationals here, who will be sent back to Japan. One of the Gripsholm's passengers is W.R. Willis, former Columbia correspondent in Tokyo. We take you now to Rio, where Mr. Willis will tell his story and interview other passengers aboard the Gripsholm. Go ahead, Rio de Janeiro. CBS Rio, this is W.R. Wills presenting a group of grip home passengers who are en route to the United States after having spent six tortured months either in Jap prisons or internment camps. I told you this morning that I would ask some of those on the grip home to tell you of their personal experiences during the period which followed Pearl Harbor. Standing beside me is Dr. H.W. Myers, age 68, from Lexington, Virginia, who was arrested by police, lodged in prison, and had actually commenced to serve time at the prison in Osaka when he was released to catch this boat. He will tell you his own, in his own words what happened to him during those memorable months. Dr. Myers, I speak of a friend of Japan who loves the Japanese people and who admires them for their many fine qualities. And I am sorry that they are suffering and hungry, many of them, through no fault of their own. I was arrested the day war was declared, and for 180 days I sampled the treatment of three Japanese prisons. Solitary confinement, unheated cells, prison garb, prison food, sitting on hardwood floors and sleeping on those same hard floors at night. I was treated in every respect, as they told me, like other Chinese, Korean, or Japanese criminals. My glasses, all books, and my own tools were taken away. I was conducted, handcuffed, from prison to prison, and from prison to the courts. For one month, I was grilled by the police, who made strenuous efforts to convict me as a spy, slapping me frequently and hard to make me recall things I had never said. My friendship for Mr. Graves, the British a consul, and this is so-called in the American consul. This friendship was the basis for the charge of espionage. My prison work was making cheap brown envelopes. Six hundred a day was my quota. The special, this is a special industry of the Osaka prison. My food was coarse, rice and wheat mix with a watery, a bowl of watery soup three times a day. My wife brought a chocolate cake for me, but I was not allowed even to smell it. When I was released for the evacuation ship, I was a skeleton and reminded my friends of a brandy without the goat. A constant sense of the presence of God was my support in those dark days and nights. And I recited the 103rd Psalm in the times of deepest discouragement. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Thank you, Dr. Myers. While the case of Dr. Myers just recounted should cause the Jap authorities to blush with shame, I'm sure the story with medical doctor Joseph L. McSpam, age 58, of Richmond, Virginia, who was arrested and thrown into prison where he was submitted to indignities and physical violence, will not lighten their load of guilt. Dr. McSpam. After nearly 25 years of pleasant life in Japan, you can imagine my great surprise on the 8th of December 
At half past seven in the morning, my bedroom door burst open violently, and four men, two of them in uniform with drawn revolvers, and two plain clothes men came in and ordered me up and dressed and took me bound between them to the Yokohama prison. I asked what it was all about, and they said, we are military police, and we, you must not talk. At the prison, I was shown to a cell and told that I would be kept there for two or three days for questioning. I stayed there until the 16th of June, that is to say, six months and nine days, and was released on five o- at five o'clock in the afternoon, the day before the evacuation ship left Japan. Up until that time, <coughs> I may say that I had a very friendly attitude toward the Japanese, and I had no reason to believe that such a thing would happen. And as a matter of fact, I had said many times to my friends that in case I were unable to leave the country before the outbreak of actual war, that I did not feel that I would be treated any worse than German residents were treated during World War One. Those residents, in many cases, in fact, in most cases, were allowed to live in their own homes and to have their own ordinary comforts and required to <coughs> report to the police at regular intervals. At any rate, it was not to be so in my case. I was, along with my other, charged with espionage, and I learned <coughs> that the basis of this charge was my friendship and association with various government officials in the American and British consulates. I was told that I was one of a committee of 14 who were regularly supplying information to these consulates. And I was also told by the examiner that I was the only one who had not confessed. My reply was that I had nothing to confess. And they said, you better think that over. And if you do not answer, as we think you should, we will have to use other methods. I said, you can use any method you like, but you will get the same answers. At the end of January, I was told that I was no longer under suspicion of espionage. But then, I was held for questioning as a Freemason. And from sometime in March until the middle of June, I was continuously questioned and grilled on the subject of large matters. I happened to be in a prominent position in large circles. I was told finally on the 13th of June that I would be uh, that they would ask a six-month sentence for me as a member of a secret organization. I replied that in that case I would have to give an advance notice that I would appeal the such a sentence to their highest court, and I would not accept a sentence from any lower court because of the fact that Freemasonry had been allowed to operate molested in Japan since the expiration of extraterritoriality in 
to be notified that I'd be among those who would be allowed to come away on the evacuation ship. Thank you, Dr. McSpern. As bad as was the treatment accorded Dr. McSpern, Dr. Edwin Jones Miller, 68-year-old missionary from Roswell, Pennsylvania, suffered torture and hardships almost indescribable. The police of Korea, where he lived, gave him and another missionary the famous water cure in order to force from them a confession of activities which were absolutely untrue. Dr. Miller is going to tell you some of the terrible trials which he endured during the four months of his incarceration. Dr. Miller. I am so glad for this opportunity to express the deep gratitude of myself and associated missionary workers to those instrumental in our getting back to the Western Hemisphere safely and to such degree of comfort. The beauty of the world-famed harbor and city of Rio de Janeiro, where the touching life and commercial and social tends to flood out from our memories the hardships of the past month, to erase the experiences of siege, of concentration camps, and of prison hardships from our book of remembrance. However, in the lives of many of us, there have been indelibly imprinted some pictures, events so vivid and so poignant, that they overshadow the pleasant remembrances of decades of hospitality, of kindness and courtesy shown us by so many of the subjects of the Japanese Empire. These recent events are unforgettable. In former years, stories of torture inflicted by the Japanese police on suspects, of the physical suffering inflicted in order to bring out desired testimony, whether false or true, were pooh-poohed as stories manufactured to explain the involvement of guilty parties whose guilt was later denied. However, the experiences which I and a number of fellow Americans have been forced to endure in the process of examination under suspicion of espionage and other charges are at least sufficient. The water treatment was given me under the pseudonym of baptism into the spirit of Japan. I was trussed up like a chicken prepared for the baking oven and placed on the back of my neck with my face toward the ceiling. And then water was poured into my face, into nose, to eyes, to mouth, through a long period. Dodge as I could, I had to swallow it and to choke. At last I was loosened and was given an uh, opportunity to dry out, which was not given to most of those who underwent the same thing from the... Koreans and Japanese in the same cell. Other tortures also were suffered by us. At one time, when my memory was not sufficient to recall things that I never heard of or knew about, my inquisitor sat beside me with a piece of rubber hose and for two hours beat me upon the head and the neck. Uh, he afterward gave me some medical treatment for it, and in about two weeks I was again about normal in the size of my head. A considerable number of nationals of the Japanese Empire under suspicion of various breaches of law who were with us in the same cells underwent these same uh, cruelties. And these evidences are incontrovertible, incontrovertible of the systematic brutality of the police system under the present government of Japan. Thank you, Dr. Miller. Not content with wreaking their vengeance on the outstanding foreign men of Japan, the Jap authorities included women, too. Outstanding case was the arrest of Miss Phyllis Argo, correspondent of the London News Chronicle and managing editor of the Japan Newsweek of Tokyo. Miss Argo told you this morning a small portion of her experience. She will now give you some of the details of her six months in Sagamo Prison in Tokyo.
Miss Argo. It certainly feels good to be talking to you from Rio de Janeiro. Because a couple of months ago, I didn't expect even to get out of a Japanese prison as long as the war lasted. I mean prison, too, not just internment camp. I was arrested December 8th by gendarme, the Jap Gestapo, and after six months' solitary confinement in Comunicado, was sentenced to 18 months' hard labor with three years' fear of execution. The trial was a 15-minute fast, so I couldn't speak to my attorney and couldn't bring witnesses or evidence in my favor. So the gendarmes had had six months in which to grill me. A lot of their translations to my evidence were wrong, and sometimes they included things I'd never said. I'm the only foreign woman ever imprisoned and sentenced in Japan. In my warrant, I was charged with revealing secrets detrimental to Japan. But my worst crime was being managing editor of Japan Newsweek, thrown by W.R. Wills, CBS correspondent, very anti-Axis. It was fun publishing anti-Axis editorials in Tokyo, seeing how long we could get away with it. Wasn't much fun, though, just sitting for six months in a cell, five feet by seven. There's no books but the Bible, and an anthology, and no one to talk to. I lived on prison food. Two. They fed us at 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 3.30 p.m., and then put us to bed at 7. I couldn't get any news of the outside world and didn't even know war had broken out until the end of January when the gendarmes told me. Up till then, they kept saying everything was quiet and cruised and normal. I was still in the United States. I guess they were at that. The lack of food and heat was pretty bad. But worse was the mental talk of utter uncertainty as to if or when I'd be released and what they were doing. I was not about when my office didn't please the gendarmes and got my face cut. It did make me mad when they handcuffed and roped me. The biggest thrill I had next to being released and hearing I was coming to the United States was the American Air Raid, April 18th. I knew it was a real raid, so I knew the sound of live shells from the first European war when I was in London. The day I was taken down to court for my trial, I saw some of the burn craters and burned out districts. That was even more thrilling. Thank you, Miss Argo. You probably are wondering what is taking place in wartime Japan. I was not able to talk to very many after my release from prison, but I gained the distinct impression that the Japanese people are doing everything they can to back up their government, mainly because they cannot do anything else. You have just listened to a special broadcast from Rio de Janeiro by W.R. Wills, former Columbia correspondent in Tokyo. Mr. Wills described his experiences as a prisoner of war in Japan and introduced other Americans who had been held prisoner. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.